welcome to another episode of the Baylor Law and Criminal Law Society podcast. I'm your host, Chris Spendlove, and I'm joined in the studio with our co-host, Ethan Scroggins. Morning, Ethan. How are you? Weathering the storm. Uh, the, the new quarter is coming about, but I guess it's a little chilly outside, too. Yeah. It uh, snows it pours. That's how we're going to go with that. Well, it's good to see you again. We've been online. haven't seen you in person for a little while, so to be in your presence once more. Speaking of being in great presences, this is truly, I know we say this most episodes, Steve made a joke about this on our last episode, but this is truly a very special, truly very special episode of the Baylor Law Criminal Law Society podcast, because we finally have the one and only Mrs. Beth Tobin in the studio here with us. Uh, Yes, applause, applause, applause. How are you this morning, Mrs. Tobin? I'm fine. Excited to be here. Good. Anxious to get this over. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, we try not to grill anyone here on the podcast. Uh, we may have grilled Ethan a little bit in his interview, but that's okay. He can take it. Uh, but we are very excited. This has been a long time coming that we've wanted to chat with you. Um, if you know anything about Baylor Law or the, the Criminal Law Society, you know that we are very blessed to have as a faculty advisor, as a mentor, a friend, um, Mrs. Tobin, who is not only a practicing prosecutor, but is an exceptional person and is very kind and very welcoming and helpful. So we're really excited to get to talk with you today um, about your experiences, about, you know, maybe talk some shop uh, about getting jobs, about TDCAA, about Baylor Law, whatever we can, <laughs> whatever we can uh, glean from you, we're, we're excited to do that. So um, let's go ahead and get started. We always like to ask our guests about their story, kind of how you, the story of your career, how you got from law school or maybe even a little bit before law school to where you are today. So, Sure. I'll be happy to address that. But first, I want to thank you guys for doing this podcast. Um I think it's incredible that you've launched out to do this, started something new. And I want to thank everybody that has done one of these podcasts and talked about their career and shared because I grew up in a family of lawyers or not lawyers, doctors and teachers. And I did not know a single lawyer when I decided to go to law school and did not have the opportunity to even visit with somebody about their career. And so if there are other law students that are out there in the same boat that I was in, I think this is a great way for them to hear about other people's careers, how they can get started and maybe find some people that they can contact. So um, I really appreciate you guys doing this. And before we start talking about my career, let's just go ahead and put it out there. Yes, I am Dean Tobin's wife. (laughs) (laughs) And for anybody who knows her, I am Sarah Beth Tobin's mother. And I'm very proud to be um, have both of those titles in addition to being a prosecutor. So uh, just put that right out there. Well, thank you. And yes, thanks again for uh, the shout out to everyone who's been on the podcast. This is now our, gosh, Ethan, what, 14th or 15th episode? plus a couple bonus episodes. So we're, we're very lucky to have gotten to talk with as many people as we have and gotten the knowledge that we have. So thank you. Yeah, for... I know a lot of those people and we're very fortunate to have them involved at Baylor Law School. So. Yes, ma'am. Thank yes. you so much. So my career, um, gosh, where to start? Um, I graduated from law school in 1984 and, um, went to the Court of Appeals, 10th Court of Appeals here in Waco for two years and briefed for Judge Thomas. Um, Sometimes a job is important because of what you learn to do. Sometimes it's it's important to learn what you don't want to do. (laughs) I love Judge Thomas, but I did not enjoy being an appellate attorney. I learned a lot of law Mm -hmm. and I think it was a good foundation for what I eventually ended up doing, being a trial attorney, reading so many trial records. But um, I learned that I did not want to do that. So um, after that, I went to private practice with a solo practitioner here in town, um, Jim Barlow, who had been a prosecutor himself. He had been a county court a law judge, and he was the district clerk, ironically, not really a lawyer job, but mm-hmm. for a long time. And then when he ran for district judge, he didn't uh, win, and so he went into private practice, and he'd been in practice by himself. And I called and said, would you like to have an associate? Have you ever thought about it? Because he was very well respected and tied into the Bar Association 
and I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And he said, sure. You know, so we met and worked together for two and a half years. And that was a great experience doing mainly criminal defense work and uh, some family law for him. Do you want me to keep going? You want Please to ask do. questions? No, that's okay. Yeah, you're on a roll. This <laughs> we'll, we'll butt in if we do. <laughs> okay, so um, when I worked with Jim, um, I learned that I really liked criminal law and I liked helping people who found themselves in that situation, criminal defendants who needed some help. My impression was some of them were really, really horrible people. Some of them had just made a lot of bad life decisions. Mm -hmm. And I would say they didn't jump off a cliff. They rolled down a hill and one day woke up at the bottom of the hill and they needed somebody to help them get back up the hill if they could. Mm -hmm. They needed somebody to help them explain to their family what was going on and educate everybody about the law and manage their expectations. And I really liked helping people. I realized that um, that's the difference between the Court of Appeals is it's book work, whereas yeah. in criminal practice, I was hands on with people and making a difference. And I really liked that. But I felt like I was making recommendations on plea offers that they should accept it or not. And I didn't really know what was a good offer so much. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know what would happen if we went to court, what would happen with the case. And I was nervous when I was in the courtroom. And I didn't like that. I felt oh, like with yeah. people's lives at stake, I should be more confident and not as nervous. So I talked to Mr. Barlow about that and asked him what he would suggest. And he said, the people who really know what a case is worth, the people who get over being nervous in the courtroom are the prosecutors because the courtroom is their office mm -hmm. and they get really used to it. And he said, I think you should go prosecute. So after two and a half years with him, that is what I did is I went to prosecute and that's what I've done for the last 37 years. No, I've been a, lawyer, a lawyer 37 years. I've done that since 1989, however many years that is. 33. Check there the math. Go. I think that's there 33. Yeah. January 23rd, 1989. Did it wow, feel like a big jump when you went from not really knowing how the courtroom would play out to being in there like every day and seeing it or was it it was sort of gradual, yeah. but I did definitely at some point get comfortable. I mean, you never lose the butterflies of getting ready to go pick a jury and the unknown of what they're going to say and the unknown of what a uh, jury's going to do. And even sentencing hearings and stuff, I still get nervous. That's, But at least I have um, a wealth of experience to weigh against those nerves. And I know what to be afraid of and what not to be afraid of. Does that make sense? So, yeah. I, I can't remember if somebody at the boot camp said it, or maybe it was Professor Little and beginning trial advocacy or something, but it's the comment has been made a few times. You know, if you feel nervous before you get up there, that's a good thing because it means you care about it, right? Oh, yeah. And that's really what I've clung to. And you know, we just recorded a, a trial advocacy, our final, you know, we had to do a little, a little trial, uh, different elements of it. And beforehand, I was like, why am I so nervous? Like I'm sitting in my office, in my home. He's like, I know what I'm going to do. This is just like a little bit. And I just, whoever said that, that voice, you know, it's because you care about it. And I think that that's really cool. Something else you said was really interesting to me about um, advising defense clients about managing expectations with their family. I don't, I don't think that that's something that we've really heard uh, yet on the podcast about the defense side is, not only like, like we've, we've, we talked a lot about, okay, there are some people who really are, you know, kind of bad people, or there's some people who have just made a bunch of mistakes, like you said, rolled down the hill, but helping them manage family expectations and know what the law is. Um, I think that that's a really interesting distinction. Um, how, how did that play out for you? I mean, helping, did you like, sit down and say, okay, here's the case law that you need to know, or just here's how you explain this to somebody. I mean, what did that look like? Well, just walking them through the system. I mean, um, I remember one day I had been a lawyer for five years and I still didn't feel like a lawyer. And somebody came in and they needed to know what the process was going to be for making bond. And then what would happen after they got out of bond and what would happen once they were indicted. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. you know, I was able to walk them through the system and talk about money and how long this would take. And I remember thinking, Oh my goodness, they really did not know the answers to this. They really needed somebody to help them figure out what to plan for. 
And I walked out and I go, I felt like a lawyer today. (laughs) (laughs) How sad I've been practicing for five years and it took that long. But yeah, Uh, probably a defense attorney is better to really talk about that. But managing expectations is something that you do even with victims Mm -hmm. because you have to educate them of the law and what the punishment range is, you know, and you can't have a life sentence if it's only a second degree felony of two to 20. And if probation is an option, you have to explain to them why probation is an option. And sometimes they may, once you explain what probation is, they may say, oh, maybe that's a better option because they're forced into treatment or somebody continues to watch over their shoulder. And, you know, they have their perceived ideas of what the criminal justice system is like, and you have to back up, educate them, and then kind of manage what's really going on in your county and what's possible. And um, I think doing that for them on the defense side or the prosecution side is a really important job. Hmm. It's part of what we do. I think that's really interesting that when you were talking about that, it reminded me of a conversation we had with Ryan Calvert on the podcast about kind of the different um, moods or modes that specifically uh, victims of domestic violence will be in. When you were talking about, you know, managing a victim's expectations of what's going to happen, that counseling aspect and meeting somebody where they are at and helping them say, okay, great, this is how you're feeling right now. And I know you want to nail this guy to the wall, but here's what we can do. Um, I, I think that that's an interesting facet of that experience that maybe we don't think about too well. Because we think, oh, prepping for trial, going to trial, you know, here's what we have to do. But there's this whole other uh, side of it. A huge part of what we do as prosecutors is not just trial prep, it's office practice and working cases, working with victims, preparing them for grand jury, pleading cases and how to plead them and figuring out what the right thing to do is because you can't try every case. There's no way. And so the majority of your time is spent on trying to come up with creative alternative ways to rehabilitate people, make the community safe if that's what you need to and, and help the victims heal, which is a huge part of being a prosecutor. And that stuff seems like it's not something you would know day one. Obviously, you have to learn and grow, and you have to have other people help you along the way. Um, is that something that like is very upfront and kind of like explicit in an office? Like when you get there, the more experienced attorneys are going to kind of help you through that, or do they just kind of put you in the water and see if you sink or swim, and then kind of give you tips if something works out or if it doesn't work out? Um. Yes, <laughs> all of the above. Of it depends on the office yeah. that you're with. I think that may be one of the reasons that I gravitated toward prosecuting. Um, my dad, like I said, was a doctor and my mom was a teacher and her background was in, she had her master's in the psychology of education. And a lot of what my dad did was counsel people and set up a mental health program for his patients. And um, so it was common at home for us to talk about human behavior and why people behave the way they do and how if someone acts this way it's going to cause other people to act this way and and so it was that's a huge part of understanding criminal cases and explaining criminal behavior and especially we're going to get to it eventually the child abuse cases the dynamics of child abuse and i think that's why i was uh kind of sought that out or fit naturally with that because I was kind of raised in a home where we did that. And there are some prosecutors that never get comfortable with that aspect of it. You know, they are great with drug cases and they are great with more black and white kind of offenses. Um, But for me, that's what I enjoyed about it was learning about human behavior and grooming and and incorporating the people aspect of it into my practice. But there is no law school class that teaches you to answer your question. And I have often said that they should allow some dual credit psychology type classes and mm-hmm. adolescent development so that you can understand kids who come into the system and um, just some basic human behavior stuff before you go into prosecuting. Unfortunately, you have to get that in your undergrad. You can't get it here or you have to get it through training. There's a lot of training for prosecutors along the way that hopefully teaches some of that. But each office is different in the amount of mentorship and uh, amount of training that you're going to get on that. And uh, that's one thing that I think is very important is finding a good office where you're going to have good mentors. Um, people who will help you learn how to communicate with victims and help them 
do that management so that they can heal through the process. I think it's very important that we help victims heal by the way that they are treated as they go through the criminal process. I want to um, then, I think this is a good time to pivot and talk a little bit about your work uh, doing child protective services cases, CPS cases. And uh, so you're, you're a prosecutor out in Limestone County, but you also handle the CPS cases for the state in that county. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. And how did you, how did you find that as your niche? I mean, we talked a little bit about your, your home life, you know, growing up and that just was kind of built into your upbringing. But at what point, you know, we talked about your transition from defense to prosecution, but at, at what point did that become part of your specialty or your, your, your niche focus? Well, it's interesting. That's where you know me from is from Limestone County, which is a great office been a wonderful match for me. I've been there for 10 years, but for 22 years before I did that, when you didn't know me, uh-huh. um, my my main area of, area of practice was uh, sexual abuse of children cases. And that's what I really spent my time doing. And um, that's where sort of my parents' background really came into play. Um, learning this the cycle of violence for domestic violence victims and then learning the the way that they groom kids and the way that the dynamic works in a home when you can get away with that um understanding the the offenders you know the thrill they get uh doing it with other people in the room or other people around and understanding that that's part of it and not just going nobody would ever do that you know and not fighting it just learning about it and that's part of I think uh, the way I was raised is to ask those questions and figure that out. So for 22 years, that's what I did. Um, And then when I went to Limestone County after leaving McLennan County, um, it was just kind of a natural. They needed somebody to do CPS. And a lot of the child abuse cases that I handled on the criminal side also had mirror image cases with the CPS docket in McLennan County. I didn't handle that docket, but I was kind of familiar with it. So um, when I went to Limestone County, I did it. The big difference for me is um, what I loved about the child abuse cases was working with the children. I had not been at the DA's office for very long back in the early 90s when uh, someone approached me and said, hey, we need a woman that can talk to this kid. Will you come, you know, talk to them? We, there were not a lot of women prosecutors in that office. And uh, the people who had done those kind of cases had left with the previous administration. So um, I was working for Mr. Segrist, the longtime DA there, another great mentor besides Mr. Barlow. Um, and so they asked me if I would be willing to learn how to talk to kids and to maybe work on those cases. And at first I didn't really know that much about it and wasn't all that excited. But then once I started working with the kids, that was really challenging. It was really fun. They, they are amazing what they can endure and put up with at home and then go to school and still function at school and, you know, have friends and carry on with their normal activities. And then they're putting up with this other stuff uh, behind the scenes. I mean, kids are so strong and resilient and I just gained great respect for them, thoroughly enjoyed working with them and talk about the courtroom, mm-hmm. you know, it's a challenge. You've talked about how nervous you got doing your exercises, you know, <laughs> Yeah. I've talked about how nervous I still get going in there. Can you imagine how nervous these kiddos get? Wow. Sometimes they don't get nervous at all because they don't understand what they're doing. Yeah. So it's just like another day in the life. But sometimes they do really get nervous. And so you have to help them. And they are not little adults. Their vocabulary is different. Their life experience is different. And if you expect them to talk like a little adult, miscarriage of justice is going to occur because they don't perceive things the same way. They don't talk about things the same way. And so when you go into the courtroom with a kid, you have to have enough of a relationship with that child that you know that you are really communicating the right thing to them, to the jury. Does that make sense? You You can lead uh, child witnesses, right? Like you can ask leading questions. It's not so much even the leading as the words and making yeah. sure that they understand the words. 
So it's going to be hard on a podcast to explain this, but one of my favorite examples was I had a 16 year old girl. So not even a little kid, Mm -hmm. 16 year old Mm -hmm. girl on the stand. And she said, sorry to be graphic, but when the stuff came out, it got on the front and the back of her shirt. And the jury kind of raised their eyebrows and defense attorneys kind of like, yeah, we got it. No way it could come out and go on the front and the back of her shirt, meaning the part of her shirt that touches her stomach and the part of her shirt that touches her back. And I even thought, oh, my goodness, what is she talking about? There's no way. So I went on to some other things. I came back to it a little bit later and I said, and where did it go? And she said, it got on the front and the back of my shirt. And so I thought, oh, what am I going? because they're like looking at her. Nobody believes her. So I change subjects, come back to it a third time. And the third time, finally, I just said, can you show me how did it get on the front of the back of your shirt? And she lifted up her shirt and she pointed to the outside of her shirt that was facing the jury. And then she pulled it inside and she showed it back. What she was trying to explain was it had soaked through her shirt mm-hmm. so that it was all the way through both sides of the shirt. Now, if I had not had a good enough relationship with her to know that she was a little bit slow because she didn't come across that way and that she was kind of limited in her life experience, I might have just given up and gone on down the road. But I think a huge injustice would have happened in that case had we not worked so hard to make sure we were communicating clearly with her. So uh, you, you think it's scary taking an adult in the courtroom take a kid in there and, and know your whole case relies on what that kid says and wanting justice for that kid. Cause if you get not guilty, not only is it going to devastate them, but think of their safety. They could be going back into the home with that person. And that's so much responsibility, but um, gosh, such a rewarding experience when the right thing happens and you're able to protect those kids and other kids as well. So that's that's the part of the career I really enjoyed. And you didn't know me when I did that, but that's yeah. that was what I did for a long, long time. Well, I've seen you in action in the CPS cases, and it's just, I don't know, you get the sense watching you that it's not old hat necessarily, but you're just, this is just your world. This is your medium. You just move in this, <laughs> well, this, this knowledge. One thing I want to ask you about that as well, um, you know, we, we had the chance to interview you as part of that mental health conversations video that we did uh, last summer. Um, I want to kind of drill down on, on those ideas specifically in this world of working with kids, because, you know, I've, I've got kids, I have two kids, my daughter's five and my son's two. And the other thing about sitting in on those CPS hearings is like, I have to keep my blood pressure down because I start thinking about like, what if somebody did this, that, or the other thing, it was my kid. Right. And it's not theoretical. It's like, I could, you know, I can put them in that place. How do you develop? I mean, what is it? Is it thick skin? Is it letting things pass through you without letting them drag you down? I mean, how do you work as diligently and as well as you did for 22 years in child sex abuse cases without either blowing a gasket or, you know, or letting it bring you down? Um, Well, I will say when I was in the heat of doing it a lot, people would come up and they'd say, how can you do that? And it kind of would make me mad. I'm like, (laughs) what's, it's almost like they're saying there's something wrong with me Hmm. that I can put up with it. And, and I, I don't think there's anything wrong with me. And I hope I haven't implied no, that by no. any means. Because and, and I, other prosecutors, I, it, for me, it's admiration. It's for awe. For other prosecutors that do it, that I think they'll understand what I say. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We don't like that question. How do you do it? Like, what's wrong with you that you can put up with this? But um, somebody's got to do it. And I enjoy the kids. And I am amazed that they trust me with what has happened to them, that they trust me enough to be their voice Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and therapists tell us that um, there's more healing that can happen in a day of them confronting the person that did it than what can happen in months and months of therapy and being able to be that person to hold their hand while they go in and do that I mean man um, it gives back so much more than it takes Um, so that's that's one reason that I do it Um, I think the point you're making is it's 
it's almost beside the point or the question is almost irrelevant. It's not by the time you get to the point where you're able to do that kind of work, it's almost like it's like the Clark Kent turning into Superman thing. It's like, if not me, who, if not now, when, you know what I mean? It's like, I I have this ability. I I'm in this place to be able to do this for this person. And so I have to, right. I mean, is that, but it's not even like I have to, it, it's it's I want to. It's, that's and why I, you I feel really I feel really honored yeah. to be able to do it. You know, my parents taught us to serve, and um, I grew up in a Christian home. I am a Christian. I believe that to whom much is given, much is required. Mm-hmm. My family put a lot of emphasis on healing and educating, and I couldn't do it through teaching, and I couldn't do it by being a doctor. And after I'd been doing this for a while, I realized that I was doing those same things. I was teaching juries. Mm-hmm. I was teaching families and educating them and managing expectations in training. I was teaching cops. Um, so I was doing the teaching, but the healing part, you know, when you go in uh, with a kid so often, and even adult sexual abuse women, they come in and their shoulders are rounded and they, they, they just have this body language of somewhat defeated. Um, a lot of burden on their shoulders and it's heavy. And then um, because there is, there's a lot of guilt, guilt if they didn't tell right away, Um, guilt if it happened to somebody else because they didn't tell, guilt because maybe there were parts of it that they liked, even though they knew it was wrong, shame because of the same thing, maybe they liked it, Um, shame because they have to tell such what other people they know are going to think horrific things that happened and they didn't do anything to fight back or stop it. But that's the sexual abuse. That's the power and that's the control. So I totally understand all that, but they're feeling that inside and they go into the courtroom and they feel insecure and defeated and round shoulders. And as they talk about it, I mean, I physically could see it. They would sit up straighter. They would lean back in their chair. And by the end, when I would say, you know, do you see the person that did that to you here in the courtroom? And they would turn and point to him. They would be sitting up and their their body would have physically changed. And the burden that they felt when they were in the courtroom has come off their shoulders. And then that finger pointing, it went over to that person sitting over there. And the physical transformation and to be able to be a part of that, I mean, it's not how can you do it? It's like, oh, thank God I get to do this for this person. I felt like it was a calling. And I think you'll hear a lot of child abuse prosecutors say, I felt like I had the gifts to do it. And that's what God wanted me to do. And that's, that's the way I felt. And I enjoyed doing it. I mean, kids say the darndest things. They're just so cute. And um, I just enjoyed being with them. Would you see like the weight? Cause you talk about that weight just being <coughs> like drawn out. <laughs> Do you ever see that going like onto the, like to the jurors or like to the judge or like, would you ever see that like kind of go into other parties, not necessarily you or like the defendant or whatever? Was that like ever kind of a part of it or? I, yes. Some juries, you could just physically see them go. Now it's our responsibility to do something about this. Yes. And, and they would. Well, I really uh, appreciate that perspective and, I appreciate you clarifying that as well. For me, I think, you know, this, I've had a chance to talk about this on the podcast. For me, I think duty drives me a lot. And so when I say, you know, I'm here, I have this ability, I have to do this. It's not like a drag, drag kicking and screaming Mm -hmm. have to, it's like, it's in me, you know what I mean? But I really appreciate hearing your perspective because it's, that's the other side of it, right? The duty becomes your desire. You know, like you have, or, or or maybe it's it's either two sides of the same coin or a different motivator for, for certain people. It's not, you know, well, I have to do this because I have this ability. You, you develop an understanding of yourself where it's like, well, this is my gift. I want to do this. I have this ability. And so now I want to. So I appreciate you putting a finer point on that or kind of clarifying, you know, what, what drives you as well. Because as we've talked a lot, about on this podcast, you know, it takes all stripes, right? If there was one cookie cutter way to be a prosecutor, you know, they would just package it. And those who met those qualifications would have it. And those that didn't wouldn't, right? But with as multifaceted as 
working with people is right and all the different needs that people have you need all those different types so i appreciate you you know i think part of what you're asking is how do you um, not burn out how do you not take it home and um i would say periodically after i tried several of them or mainly worked on those kind of cases not just had trials periodically i i my trial partner and I would say, Hey, can we have a good ag robbery? Does somebody mind <laughs> if we try something different just yeah. to think about something different for a little bit so that then when we come back to it, we would be a little bit more refreshed, renewed. I, mean, I think that's human nature that doing something different every once in a while is, is good for you. And so we would go try an ag robbery or maybe do a murder or something like that. But then I would find myself missing the kids and wanting to get back to it. And I'd be like, okay, that's enough of a break. I, yeah. I need to go do that. And um, one of my coworkers just really wanted to do murders. I mean, that's what he liked. And um, one time we were having a conversation and he was like, then you don't have to bond and mm. and go home with the burdens of that person because you don't have a relationship with them okay it's a it's a murder victim so yeah. they're not there yeah. and to me those were harder because i didn't know that person and i was being a voice for that person but i had never met that person and so um i found it easier to be a voice for the children that I had met and the domestic violence victims or whatever, where I had a relationship with them. So that just, yeah. I guess it goes to your different personalities and what you're, what drives what you, drives yeah. you and what you're good at. So hmm. um, I just found that to be a lot easier in a way, not harder, but easier because I knew the person. So maybe that helps as far as not taking it home. Um, I'm very blessed to be married to a lawyer who understood and I had very understanding kids. Um, they knew that this was what I felt called to do and they supported me. And so if I was preoccupied and in trial and working on the weekends, they knew it wasn't gonna last forever. Most trials are Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, maybe into Thursday. Mm. And so if, if I had to take five days of real concentrated work over the weekend and then through the week, they knew it was gonna end. And then I would be back in you know, sync with them and more focused. I'll never forget Sarah Beth was little one time and went in and kissed her goodnight. And I said, honey, I'm just sorry. I haven't been zoned in on what you've been doing this week. And I said, just view it as you're doing your part for child abuse. And she said, oh, mom, you take care of your kids now and I'll take care of mine when I'm a prosecutor. Aww. I was like, oh, <laughs> she never said she wanted to be a prosecutor when she was growing up, but that was when she was little. I think it's quite funny that she's gone on to be a prosecutor now. That's but cool. yeah, it was, wow. it was, it made me feel like she understands she's okay. It's all right. So yeah, there were a few <laughs> cases I worked on, um, with kids who were the same age as my kids were at the time. I remember, mm -hmm. um, a couple of cases with 12 and 13 year old girls that were molested when Sarah Beth was about that age. And I just remember thinking, how in the world did anybody do that? to somebody and I would look at her and go, Oh my gosh. And I just had to learn to separate that. Yeah. And, and that's part of practice and uh, injury to a child case. When she was a baby, I prosecuted a dead baby case and they had the same feelings of that. I just kept looking at the autopsy photos and going, how in the world, you know, looking at my healthy, happy little baby and thinking how in the world did this happen? Um, but it just makes you work harder. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. I mean, semi-selfishly, I appreciate you telling us that because over the summer, there were a couple of cases that I worked on uh, in Bear County. I was in the family violence unit. It was the same thing. I was like, this kid was born within a couple of weeks of my son or daughter. You know what I mean? And just learning that you have to, right? You just, again, have to separate that to be able to do your job. That's That's good to hear too. And you talk about skill sets and what's required and everybody's, you know, different. Um, but do you think that just innately or something about it that female prosecutors are a little more suited for child protection or child abuse or family violence? Or do you think that it doesn't really matter? It just depends on who the person is or I mean, what are your thoughts on that? 
think it depends on who the person is. I really do. Um, when I started doing it, everybody thought it needed to be a woman. And that's why they came and asked me because there were not a lot of women around. And um, I do think younger kids um, may feel more comfortable talking to a woman because they've been with their mother more generally, but it could absolutely be the opposite. They may be, if they've been raised by their father, they might feel more comfortable with a man. It just depends. And I, it depends on the guy who's trying the case. I mean, I've seen some guys do a really good job with young kids. And uh, so it just depends on the personality. I had been doing a long time and I took a guy in to court with me, a trial partner that um, I had never tried a case with. And he was from another county. And this particular kid, I had a really hard time getting her to open up on the witness stand. And I was getting super frustrated and he was really calm and was whispering ideas into my ear. And finally he, something he said, I said it and it tripped with her and she just opened up. It was like unlocking the door. And I was super appreciative of him. And he, I let him put the next kid on. I think the next time I tried a case with him, he was, he was good. So it just depends on the particular person. And it probably depends on the kid, the kiddo. So at what point, I mean, obviously, as a, let me put it this way, obviously, as a young prosecutor, a new prosecutor, you're just trying whatever comes across your desk, right? Oftentimes misdemeanors, that sort of thing. At what point can you or do you have a conversation with your supervisor, or your superiors about like what types of cases you're really interested in? trying? Is it just kind of, oh, we, we see that you have tried a bunch of these cases and have done really well. We can see you in the courtroom. You seem to have kind of a drive for this particular thing. Like you were talking about your trial partner who was really motivated, you know, to try and do well on murder cases, whereas you were you know, working on these child sex abuse cases or so is it kind of just a, a natural evolution or is it like, okay, now that I've been a prosecutor for a couple of years, this is really what I want to be doing. And again, I think it depends on the office, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. which is another one of my mantras is find a good office, find an office with a boss who is going to back you up, who is honest, who has integrity, who's a good leader, who uh, doesn't micromanage, hires the best people, gives them freedom to do a good job, gives them guidance and training so that they know how to do a good job um, and supports them a lot. Um, it's a hard job. And if you don't feel like you have that support from the top, it's going to be even harder. So if you have a good relationship with your supervisors and the people who are making those kind of decisions, I think if you have a passion and you have a gift, there are enough cases around. You should be able to go to them and say, hey, I really would like to try this. Mm -hmm. um, what, what do I need to do? How can I be a team player, but what do I need to do to be able to be prepared to maybe get an opportunity like that and see if, if they will steer you that way? Um, there's plenty of work to do. So, yeah. uh, and if I were the supervisor, I would want to match people's desires and abilities with the work that's to be done in the office, because I think it will be more efficient for everybody. They'll right. do a better job. They'll enjoy it. They won't quit. They'll stay with their job. You know, you won't be hiring and training new people if you let them do what they want to do, if they're good at it. Um, so it can't hurt to explore that option, try to go to those trainings and learn it. And then, I mean, let your supervisors know. Yeah. Something that I'm kind of torn with as I get closer to graduating and determining where I want to live is, you know, does obviously the office where I'm going to work is going to matter, but like, does that matter more than maybe the city that I live in? Like, is it better to maybe live in a city where you, you don't, you're not really super excited about, but the office is great. I mean, and you have that aspect of your life filled. Like, do you think that is more important or do you think that maybe living in an area that you like a little more, but the office isn't as welcoming or beneficial? Well, that's a decision you're going to have to make. It's a personal decision. I mean, stop and think about it. You spend a lot of time at work. And there's dry cleaners in every city. There's a grocery in every city. <laughs> yeah. And you're going to spend the rest of your time running those errands and doing those things. Okay. So to me, I think being happy at work, finding a job uh, that is fulfilling in a place that you can grow and make a difference is really important 
especially maybe your first job um, while you're mm -hmm. learning. You want to learn from people who are good and that are reputable and that are going to teach you the right way to do things. And um, I just think that's super important. And then you you can take that elsewhere if you really are unhappy with that city and incorporate those good skills and learning habits into your next job, maybe. Um, but I just think, especially when you're first learning, finding a good mentor, a good boss. Um, I've mentioned Jim Barlow and I mentioned John Seegers that I worked for. Another thing, they were both Christians, which was huge to me because we had a common base to start from. And the other thing about both of them was family, super important to them. Um, and civility, they, the bar and the judiciary, great respect for the institutions mm -hmm. and wanting to uphold the traditions of those institutions. You may not always respect every decision that judge made, but you respected the bench and you respected that uh, authority that that person had. And you had, had to work with it and um, respect for all kinds of people, not be demeaning or choose one class or group over another. Everybody gets the same justice, no matter their social economic background, every victim is the same and deserves the same. That was really important to me. And um, I was so fortunate that Mr. Segrist totally believed that too and supported that. So I think when you're right out of law school, you need to work with somebody that's really got good values and that can mentor you the right direction. Can you think of any like red flags that like if you're in an interview or something like that, or maybe in your first year that you tell somebody to get out or is that too specific of a question? Well, I, it depends on the office, depends on the size of the office, you know, a bigger office, you're going to be probably starting it a lower level. And so uh, the politics at the top is not going to be as important. You know, you need to meet your misdemeanor chief. You need to meet the other people doing misdemeanors and assess whether they're the kind of people you want to work with more so than the top person, because you're not going to have a lot of contact with that person. But in a smaller office, that's much more important. So I hate to just keep saying it depends, it depends, but there are a lot all of factors. To, yeah. All things yeah. to take yeah. into consideration. And I mean, that was the other thing I was going to ask you as well. You know, the interview process is mostly a one way street, but that there, there is that feedback element from the interviewee that you have to really try to glean in that setting some of these things, right? What are the, what are the values in this office? What is it going to be like? I mean, just like any other job interview, right. you know, every job posting is going to say, self-motivated, work in a fast-paced environment, we're a family, blah, blah, blah. But when you can sit down in the interview, you know, be prepared, I guess, to ask some of those questions. And so what I was going to, what I was going to ask you about that is, you know, we've, we've talked a lot on the podcast. Many of our guests have said, you know, in your interview or your application process for these prosecuting jobs, most people aren't looking at your GPA, whatever. They're looking at you at your values and that kind of thing. Um, is that appropriate to bring up in the interview process? Like I care a lot about this type of case or I see myself focusing on this specific area five years from now. Oh yeah. I mean, a, a common question is where do you see yourself in five years? Yeah. You know, um, if you had another common question, if you had any kind of crime that you could prosecute, what would it be and why? Those are common questions that I've asked in interview teams before. So, um, I don't think it would be harmful to, I mean, you got to be yourself. You got to be honest. If you really want to work in child abuse, say, I really am passionate about that. That's part of the reason I went to law school. What are the opportunities and how does one work their way into that job? You know, yeah. get the opportunity to have that experience. Yeah, I think that's perfectly right to ask that question. One thing that I have really come to appreciate about you getting to work with you and getting to know you over the last year and a half is your your dedication not only to the idea of justice and doing justice, but your idea of of going to the one, the one person in front of you, they're the most important person, you know, the one victim or the one, you know, person that you're working with. Will you talk with us about starfish for a moment? <laughs> well, you can't prosecute everybody and you can't fix everybody. And, um, Partway through this career, 
maybe early on, I realized, you know, no matter how many years I do this, there's still going to be another child molester out there. There's still going to be another murder out there. And I'm not going to solve it all. I'm not going to fix it all. And if that's your goal, then you're going to end up very frustrated. And at the end of your career, feel like you were a failure. Hmm. And um, so somewhere along the way, I read the story of the starfish flinger. Somebody shared it with me or something. And um, eventually my son actually drew me a starfish when he was a little boy. And so I, um, had his starfish mounted and I put it with this poem up on my wall and it has become my motto. And, um, just to make sure I do it right. I'm actually going to read it to you if I can find it here. It's called the starfish flinger. As the man walked the beach at dawn, he noticed a young man ahead of him picking up starfish and flinging them into the sea. Finally, catching up with the youth, he asked him why he was doing this. The answer was that the starfish would die if he let it lie on the beach and the morning sun came. And he said, but the beach goes on for miles and there are millions of starfish. How can your effort make any difference? And he said it made a difference to this one. And that kind of became my motto is I can't help every single child who gets molested. I can't lock up every single person that molests kids, but I can help the one that's in front of me. And um, I'm sure along the way I have disappointed a lot of kids and I've probably disappointed a lot of parents, but hopefully I have made a difference in some of their lives and um, made a difference in that family. And that kind of became my motto. Um, as I approach, I don't know when I'm going to retire, but at some point I will. And, and I've told the young prosecutors that my finger's in the dike right now, holding the water back and I want you to be ready. And that's why I have enjoyed getting involved with the Criminal Law Society and boot camp at Baylor Law School. And I'm really proud of Baylor for uh, making some changes in the curriculum so that we have uh, young prosecutors and defense attorneys trained and ready to go out there and practice because this is such an important area because it does really affect people's lives. And I want to help the next generation of prosecutors be ready to stick their finger in the dike when I pull mine out. And I want to make sure there are people that won't just do it for a day or two or a year or two, but that will stick with it because uh, as anything, you get better with time and your experience builds on itself and, and, People need that experience and that wisdom that comes from time. So I'm hoping that we can um, educate the next generation of Baylor prosecutors in addition to the next generation of Baylor lawyers. And that's why I'm so excited about this society. We are running short on time and I don't, I don't want this conversation to end, but we, that's the, the simple fact of the matter. I want to ask you then briefly about, to, to kind of talk about, you know, pivot with what we were just talking about, your involvement with TDCAA. Will you talk just a little bit about um, your involvement and, and what you've been able to do with them? Um, the Texas District and County Attorneys Association is the statewide association of prosecutors and county and district attorney offices. And it is one of the strongest associations in the country. It is huge. It is a great asset. I mean, you learn a lot as a Baylor Law student but there's going to be so much more that you need to hone in on when you become a prosecutor. And they provide that training right off the bat through their trial skills course for brand new prosecutors, through education classes and seminars throughout the year on different topics. Um, they have videos on how to prosecute DWI cases, examples on how to do Fort Dyer, how to do field sobriety tests. I mean, they have it all. And you build this network of people that you know, and they're your partners in this problem of solving crime and keeping our state safe. And so you're not in it alone. You're part of this big brotherhood and it's just such a great association. And all you have to do is show up for the meetings, uh, go to the annual in the fall and start meeting people and volunteer. If there's an opportunity to serve, um, tell them that you're willing to help and, and you can get more and more involved. You know, 
when um, Sarah Beth became a prosecutor, our daughter, she had played ball, uh, softball all through school and played in college. And she had always been a part of a team. And one of the things she said to us after she started prosecuting was she said, I'm still a part of a team. And yeah. I had never thought of it like that because I wasn't an athlete, but that's what we are. Mm -hmm. all, we're part of a big team of prosecutors that are trying to do the right thing um, to do justice for our state and uh, we'll work together to do it. So um, it's, it's a great association. I strongly encourage our graduates to get involved. Well, thank you. And we've heard uh, from a few different people just off the top, Ryan Calvert and uh, Rob Keppel, who's the executive director, he came for PDP a couple months ago here. So we're we try to be plugged in with them. But again, appreciate you, you know, talking about that with us. Um, gosh, <laughs> again, we've been richly fed today. Uh, I feel like we could probably talk a lot more. Uh, is there anything else that we didn't ask you that you wish we had or any parting wisdom that you want to leave with us? No, I just hope y'all uh, pass on to the next generation of officers of this association, the wisdom that you have gained from doing this and from your leadership. You guys have done a great job this year and the group of gals that were officers the year before. And I, I hope we can keep this association going long past my time here. So yeah, thanks same. for your work and for the foundation you've laid. Well, thank you. I feel like we built on a foundation that that previous executive team they were really laid that, yeah. that allowed us to do what we've been able I'm to excited do. for the podcast episode where Chris is a guest as a 10 year <laughs> prosecutor, you know, there we go. His, his discussion, all these well, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on today and to get Thank to sit you. down and talk with you. It always is, but thanks, thanks. so much for coming on. Listeners, we're going to leave it there for now. Thank you so much for joining us on another episode of the Baylor Law Criminal Law Society podcast. Until next time, y'all take care.